Good morning. Our scripture passage is 1 John 4, verses 13 through 21. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. My name is Dylan, one of the pastors at Sojourn, so thankful that you're here. We are under the conviction that although you guys are seated, that this is not a time for you to be a passive audience, and indeed you are not a passive audience, you are still actively worshiping, and so as we join around the Word, we want you to actively worship the one true living God, and we learn about Him and see Him most clearly in his word. So as we turn to 1 John this morning, would you please pray with me that God would use this time for our good and his glory. Father, your word says that all things for those who love you work together for good. So we trust this morning that this passage uh, is going to do just that, work for our good, to form us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that that would happen in us this morning. God, form us into the image of your Son, make us like him, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. Now, it is one thing to be loved and another thing to see or know that you are loved. Perhaps you would know this morning, you know, somewhere out there in some way you know uh, that there is love for you, and it's another thing to, to, to actually know that you're loved, to see that you're loved. Uh, assurance comes from not just being loved, but from knowing that you are loved. And John has been writing this epistle to these readers, to this audience, to give them assurance. They've been shaken. They have doubts. They have questions. And he wants them to have assurance. And he's been writing, chapter 3 and 4, much content on the subject of love and his goal for that topic of love and reminding them of love was not just that they would know love itself, but they would have the assurance that flows from that love. He wants them to see that love enough that it would then produce in their lives some assurance before God. 
So in knowing and seeing that they're loved, and for us as believers, knowing and seeing that we're loved leads to us assurance, leads us to assurance. Now, when we get to this place in 1 John chapter 4 and throughout, one commentator said it's not easy to find a single strand of thought running through the epistle at this point. So we have a little bit of a a difficult task from this point on to to kind of bring some sort of coherence together because John is going to shift and move a little bit, but that's the task before us. And as active worshipers of the one true living God, we trust his word and we're going to give ourselves to it. And what John does here in this passage is he gives to his readers, he gives to those who have trusted in Christ, the children of God, multiple evidences of their life in Christ, multiple evidences to give them assurance before God. And I've categorized it kind of this way. He, he talks about possession, the possession of the Spirit of God, confession of the one true living God, confession of Christ, and, and then he talks about love both received and given. So John goes back here to his main purpose, to give assurance. And and to give them assurance, he, he doesn't give them new information. He doesn't explore new data. He repeats something that he's already said. In fact, it's very similar to what we find in verse 13 to what he said in verse chapter 3, verse 24. Chapter 3, verse 24 says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. There's this sense of mutual indwelling. And by this, we know that he abides in us. How? By the spirit whom he's given us. Now, chapter 4, verse 13, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us. Again, that idea of mutual indwelling. We're in God and God's in us. And a mind-blowing reality for, for sinful people, but true in Christ now. He abides in us, we abide in him. And how do we know that? Because he has given us his spirit. And I've heard, and maybe you've heard this too, that that. The Holy Spirit in one's life is, you couldn't ignore it, you couldn't miss it if it was there. It's like having an elephant in a room, and it's unmistakable. And I find that less than helpful. Uh, That's supposed to bring assurance, but John, who writes a whole letter to bring assurance to those who he says and uh, continues to affirm as those who love God, who have the love of God, who are children of God, right then when he writes to them, He writes to them, and he doesn't say, if God abides in you, it's like an elephant in the room, and it's going to be completely and overwhelmingly obvious to you that that's true. Instead, he actually does a couple different times the same kind of thing and says that the Spirit abides in you. He has to point it out. So it seems as if some sort of common experience that they're dealing with, that they have the Spirit, but that they don't know exactly what that looks like or feels like or is supposed to look like and feel like, and they don't have assurance in that as if it's like the elephant in the room that they can't avoid. Now, I'm not saying that it couldn't possibly be like that. It couldn't be like where you could see it and it'd be unavoidable that you have the Spirit, but I'm not saying that that's always the case for believers because I don't think John would agree with that. I think if you're struggling with assurance that you actually possess the Spirit of God, that there's this mutual indwelling, that God's in you and you're in God, I think that if you're struggling with assurance of that, that that's a common struggle. Evidently, it's not always obvious. That's why John writes about it a few different times to make sure we can get assurance because it's not always completely obvious. And John writes so that we might hear from God on it, so that we would hear God's word in what he says when we're struggling with assurance. Now, what's interesting about verse chapter 3, verse 24, and chapter 4, verse 13, is that these verses, speaking about the, the Spirit being in us, they 
What, what it doesn't say is, is how the Spirit assures us. It, he just says that He does. Like, here's how we know that God abides in us and we in Him, by His Spirit. And, and that's kind of how He leaves it. It's as if John expects, and I think this is what John expects, the Spirit to do what the Spirit does. And, and what does the Spirit do? What is the Spirit's role? The Holy Spirit he opens up eyes to the greatness and the glory of Jesus, right? As the third person of the Trinity, the, the Spirit makes sure that, that we don't go away from the Godhead, but we go to it and we see the greatness and the glory that exists there primarily in the Son. He is the Spirit who, who makes us cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, he, he directs us in all of our life in prayer toward the Father, knowing that if we have him, we are adopted children. We belong to him. We are his. And so there's this cry out. Even John would say that you can approach and cry out with confidence because the Spirit is in you. The Spirit produces all sorts of fruit that you could read out throughout the Scripture, but John points to one over and over and over again. That's the fruit of love in your life, love for God, love for other people. The Spirit always does those things. And so John doesn't give the exact kind of formula that the Spirit is going to work out and how he, knowing that the Spirit is in you, is going to work itself out. All that He just expects him to do all of these things. And so these verses, they're, they're not detached. Chapter 3, verse 24, verse 13, and chapter 4, they're not detached from their context. And in chapter 3, verse 24, you find this uh, in this context of, of love and belief and obedience. They're all going together. And then kind of towards the end, he just says, we know that you are God's because you have God abiding in you. And in verse 13, here's a section all about knowing God's love. He said, and this is God's love a couple different times about confession that he's getting ready to talk about of Jesus as the son. He's going to talk about love for brothers and sisters. That's the context of, of John uh, chapter 4, verse 13. And so knowing that the Spirit is there and he's, he's looking around there, if you look around the context and you're seeing all sorts of things that the Spirit does. And so while he may not give a specific thing here of like, hey, you know that the Spirit's in you if all these things happen. We know that there are all those things there because they're within the context. John doesn't say, hey, there's an elephant in the room, just look around. He doesn't point to a specific gift or a specific feeling, but what he does do is he connects the Holy Spirit to the life he's been calling Christians to live. The, the life he wants them to embrace is all around the context of the Spirit dwelling in them, and he's connecting those together. He's connecting the Spirit of God in a person with the way they practically live. So, so he's saying that if the Spirit's in you, within context, there's right doctrine, we're going to confess the right kind of things, and there's right practice. We're going to do the right kinds of things. We're going to love as God has loved us. And so John is connecting the Holy Spirit abiding in us with the life that he has called us to live. And that life then evidences, again, that the Holy Spirit is in us. Now, this is an important uh, order to get in place. One commentator, I think, helps us. And, and read through this carefully because it matters about, again, the order. He says, John Stott, belief and love are not the conditions of the indwelling, however, but the tests and evidences of it. So John writes, not by this we live in him, but by this we know that we live in him. And that's going to matter immensely as we work through this passage. The ground of the assurance that John gives is the Holy Spirit abiding. But how does one know if the Holy Spirit abides? And John is going to give multiple evidences, and a combination of these evidences will show someone to be a true believer or 
not. And the first one that he gives and that he gave here in verse 13 is possession of the Spirit. Then he's going to say, if there's possession of the Holy Spirit, here are some other things that will also be present. So he's going to move us from possession, we have God in us and we are in God, to this confession of Jesus and this love for others. So if the Holy Spirit abides, it will first affirm the testimony of the apostles, like John, that he's giving to them. In chapter 4, verse 6, here's what he said, we are from God. You know, I think there he's using this apostolic we. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What does he then say in verse 14? Chapter 4, and we have seen, again, maybe he's speaking of some of the eyewitnesses, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. In a way, John goes back to where he started this whole epistle. John chapter 1, 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The Holy Spirit abides in a person. There is no need then for some sort of special knowledge, new information, new wisdom that comes from maybe someone who is saying something else about Jesus that has something like that. He's saying you believe what you have heard, what we have proclaimed to you, that you agree with this and that you confess it. What John makes clear throughout is that the Holy Spirit leads uh, into genuine faith in the real Jesus, the verified Jesus, the one that he proclaimed to them because he had seen him. He had, he had borne witness to him with his own eyes. And so if there's another Jesus being proclaimed, he says, well, we know that that's the spirit of the Antichrist, not of truth. If they're not listening to what we have said and the witness that we have given, then they're not leading to the real and verified and living Jesus. John and the apostle were eyewitnesses, and they testified that Jesus had come, and that he'd come, listen to what he said here, that Jesus is Savior. So he is telling them that what they have in the Jesus and the message, the gospel, they'd proclaimed to them is enough for them. That what they knew of Jesus is enough for them. There, there's no need for more information about Jesus. God, John had given them what they needed to trust in order to have salvation. So they don't need new knowledge, which was likely being proclaimed from these people that had left them. Like, actually, we've got new knowledge about Jesus. We want to tell you about him. John said, you don't need that. I've borne witness. I've seen it with my eyes. I delivered it to you. I proclaimed to you that you might have eternal life. And if you believe in the Jesus and the message that we have given, you do have it. And notice in these verses, 13 and 14, it's subtle, but it's there. There's a, a, a reference to the Trinity. You have the Father sending the Son and the Spirit abiding in. And I think that there's a subtle point with that, that the Father sends the Son and the Holy Spirit, again, it's the real Son who points us to the, and puts us in right connection with the real Father, and here's the Holy Spirit abiding, and the Spirit he, he is right along with the Father and the Son. So in other words, the Spirit's not going rogue and saying something different and not bringing about glory and honor to the verified Jesus who points us to the Father, right? Those all are together. And so there's real assurance in the Holy Spirit given by the Father who also sent the Son. 
So it's by the power of that spirit that the real living Jesus, the the one that John knew and verified, it's by the power of the spirit that, that any can see that Jesus rightly. And if we see him as John has put him forward and trust that and believe that, then we can have an evidence that the spirit is in us because it's only by the power of the spirit that Jesus is seen rightly. Now, now John and, and the other apostles and others were fuzzy on Jesus' identity at times, weren't they? And there are times during the, the life of Jesus, during the ministry of Jesus, that John and the other disciples, they, they weren't entirely clear what it meant that Jesus was the Son of God or the Savior of the world. I mean, that was evidenced in many different ways. J- Jesus would tell them at times, like, hey, guys, guess what? Here's where it becomes really unclear for them. I'm going to have to die. I'm going to be delivered over and be crucified. And they're like, I don't know what he's talking about. And some of them even said it like, no, that doesn't happen to you. So they were fuzzy at times on Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission, especially when it came to the crucifixion. Indeed, when Jesus was arrested, most of them abandoned him. If they would have thought he was the Savior, perhaps they wouldn't have abandoned him in that moment. But they were a little bit fuzzy on, on, you just got arrested, you're going to be taken. I don't know how that means that you're, they were fuzzy. And so they abandoned Jesus, and we know that after Jesus died, they were in hiding behind locked doors. There's some, they're unclear about this. But when Jesus rose, and when the Holy Spirit was given to them, by the power of the Spirit, what they saw, they then saw. They were then cleared up on the person and work of Jesus, on who he was and what he had come to do. There was no more uh, fuzziness in their minds. And so what they just started doing is they began to testify with conviction, even to the point of death, about the reality of Jesus and what he had come to do, that he had come to be the Savior of the world. Apart from the Spirit, Jesus could have been considered many things, but not Savior doesn't seem to be a likely one, right? There's a reason that Paul talked about the cross as if it was folly and a stumbling block, because to have a Savior who is also crucified seems a little bit foolish, Indeed, it would be foolish, would it not be for the resurrection? And when the Holy Spirit's at work, what He does is He shines the spotlight on Jesus and on the cross, and that through the the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that there's salvation. And then this cross that would seem like folly and would be a stumbling block becomes then power and wisdom, not because we have just figured it out, but because the Spirit has opened our eyes to the greatness that was actually there in Jesus already. And so the Holy Spirit's constant task is to unblind eyes to the glory of Christ. And so John can say, as he says in verse 15, that whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And there again, there's this idea of mutual indwelling. God abides in us and we are abiding in him. And he can say that in verse 15 because this is a real Jesus the one he'd seen with his own eyes. And because the Holy Spirit had been at work so that he wasn't fuzzy anymore on whether or not Jesus actually is the Son of God, he he knew, he was convicted, convinced, compelled that Jesus is the Son of God, enough to go to the grave with that should it be necessary. Enough to go out into the world and proclaim it and testify even under difficult circumstances and pushback that Jesus is who we've been saying he is. And so one of the evidences that the Holy Spirit abides in a person is that they know Jesus in this way. 
And they are even not even just know it intellectually, but are at the point where there's conviction. They're willing to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. There is no relationship with God apart from acknowledging Jesus as Son of God. Verse 15 is pretty clear. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That's the way. One who does confess Jesus as the Son of God, you can be assured that that this is the person that God abides in. If God abides in a person, then this confession of Jesus as the Son of God is, is never merely just some cold statement of fact. Listen to what he says in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. The the knowledge and the truth of the confession that Jesus is the Son of God goes along with knowing God's love because, again, God abides in us. By the possession of the Spirit, we see Jesus rightly as the Son of God, the Savior came to the world, and we know the love of God that is shown in Jesus and given to us. Now, verse 16 is parallel in many ways to verse 14, but I think it kind of finishes off the thought, All right? Verse 14 says, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. In verse 16, we have come to know and believe the love God has for us. And in other words, he, he came to be the Savior of the world and that we might know that He has come to be the Savior of the world and know and sense His love. And verse 9 and 10, if we go back and look at this love, we see that this is the love of God that was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son to the world that we might live through Him. And in this, verse 10, this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He, he loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this is the reality of how Jesus could come to the world as the Son of God and be the Savior of the world, is, is by displaying His love, by becoming a propitiation for our sins, turning away the Father's wrath. That's how he can be Savior. And, and if you're going to trust that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the propitiation for sins, that he is Savior, then you know in that the love of God for you. To be the Savior, he had to be sent. He had to be the propitiation. Sending and propitiation display the immeasurable love of God. So one who knows Jesus as Savior, sent as the propitiation for their sins, also, verse 16, knows and believes the love of God for them. So the Doctrinal knowledge that Jesus is Savior, the Son of God, goes along with the experiential knowledge of God's love for us. So love is then necessarily connected with faith. John speaks of belief in Jesus as as head and heart, of doctrine and experience in a sense, of faith, belief, and love, knowing that love and then displaying that love. I mean, how could one know Jesus as the Son of God sent to be Savior and propitiation for their sins and not know and believe God's love for them? And yet, and yet, too often that does seem to be the issue, doesn't it, around us? Are we not convinced that Jesus is the Son of God? My guess is that many would say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior. But my guess is that your conviction that He loves you is a little bit less sure than your conviction that Jesus is the Son of God. And if that's the case, the first thing maybe we should do is examine our faith to see if we really are from God. Do we really know Jesus rightly as the Son of God or if it's just some 
kind of, again, like cold statement of fact that's in us. But if we have real faith and we're still struggling, like we, we would die for the saying that Jesus is the Son of God, but we, we're not so sure about that experience of God's love for us. We're not so clear that He actually does love us. If, if we have real faith and that's the case, then what I think we need to do is take that faith that, that trusts in Jesus as the Son of God and kind of, in a sense, apply it to the love. And what I mean is this, is to say like you're, you're taking by faith that Jesus is who He says He is. Well, He's this propitiation, Son of God, Savior. Well, why don't you have faith that all those things, how He became those things, was a display of His love. And so since if you don't feel loved, you don't know that love in the right way, you just you go back again and you look at Jesus again. And if He is who He says He is and He did those things, then He did it because He loved. That's what John has been uh, arguing with us all along. God is love. And the overflow of that was the sending of His Son to die as a propitiation for sins, turning away the Father's wrath so that we might be called children of God. Amen. So he didn't do it so that God could love us. Right? You, you don't trust in this Jesus who, who died so that then God could, could love us as a father. He loved us and sent his son. Not to make us lovable, but because he already loved and is love. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, then you need to trust and believe that that was an overflow of His love, a display of His love, and that is a love, John says, is for us. People who know and believe in Jesus and have an exalted view of Him, they rightly confess Him, and along with that, they believe in God's love for them. Paul does this. Paul Paul prays for the Ephesians in chapter 3 of Ephesians. After so much of gospel uh, content, right? I mean, this isn't in the slides, but chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. And what happened? Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. I mean, this is what he's been saying. Gospel realities, gospel truths for them. And so in chapter 3, he gets to this place where he doesn't just want to know what happened in terms of information and data in the gospel. He wants us to know experientially the love of God for us. So chapter 3, verse 19, or 17, I'll start in verse 17. He's praying for them. He's bowing the knee before the Father. That's Ephesians 3, 14. And here's what he's saying. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. Now for Paul, Paul's a man of doctrine, right? He loves right doctrine. He, he, he made sure that he would give clear justification for our justification, right? That you are right in the sight of God by your faith in Jesus, and then he makes sure he, he gets rid of all other gospels and says, if there's anything else other than that Jesus is enough and your faith in Jesus is, is what saves, that, then let them be anathema. He cares about doctrine and that confession being right. It mattered to him, but so does love. And he was enamored with God's love, so much so that he, he prays for all the Ephesians. He wants them to grasp and know God's love along with this idea of, of doctrine. He is enamored with God's love enough to say in Romans 8, after saying there's no condemnation for those in Christ, what does he go on to say? Oh man, his love, nothing 
separate us from that love, could it? I mean, you know, we could think about all the scenarios. No, no, nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ. He wanted others then to not just know right doctrine, but to be enamored with the love that goes along with it. That they go together. How about John? John wrote the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, right? According to John. And he wrote for this purpose. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he, he says, Jesus did many other things, but these are written, why? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. All right? He wants people to know the right kind of things. But then he writes 1 John, right? And he fills 1 John with all sorts of content about knowing the love of God and saying twice that God is love. He clearly saw belief in Jesus go hand in hand with believing and knowing the love God has for us. Faith and love, then they go together. If you're doctrinally filled, but see God as, as cold, then you need to go back to the content of that doctrine. And if the content of that doctrine doesn't then fill you with the warmth of God's love, then, then the content is wrong. Because the content of Jesus as the Son of God goes hand in hand with the content that that was a display of his love for us. Remember, in this is love that Jesus was sent, that he died as a propitiation for sins. These go together. Knowledge of Jesus should go with knowledge of God's love. We ought to be doctrinally alive and aware of God's love for us in the same breath. We have this awareness of God's love and affection and an understanding of doctrine that is right and true and good. And as Paul said in his prayer for the Ephesians, this isn't just something for the, the elite or the few. This isn't something for the eyewitnesses or for the apostles. This love of God for us is something for all of the saints to comprehend. It's for us. It's meant to be known. Not just that we are loved, that God could have done that. He does love us, but he wants us to see that we're loved, to know that we're loved. So the questions from this are, well, do we confess rightly Jesus as the Savior, the Son of God? Do you know that? And along with that, do you know and believe the love that God has for you? Those are meant to go together. John puts them together so that we might know that. So faith in the real Jesus and belief in God's love, they, they go together. And, and these things, if you have faith in this real Jesus and can confess him as the Son of God, if you believe and know his love that he has for you, these are a few precious evidences that God abides in you and that you abide in God. And this is what John is giving to them. Like the, it might have assurance. Like he's, here's some evidence. Do you recognize Jesus rightly? Do you know his love for you? Those are some evidences that you abide in God and that God abides in you. Now, if any is unconvinced of God's love, then John repeats in verse 16 that simple phrase. We ought to know it well. Flip back to 1 John, verse 16. We know and have come to know and believe the love God has for us. And here it is. God is love. It's as if John, in this simple statement, he, like he can't get away from the thought. He, he's writing this epistle, and he's like, he, he wrote God is love, and he's like, he has to come back to it. Like God is love, the simplicity, but the, the breadth of that, the height of that, the width of that. And so he repeats it again very simply. So after affirming the love that God has, he says, for us, he affirms again that God is love, which is grounding the love that God has for us. This is grounding it. It's grounded in God himself. 
That matters. Hopefully you're familiar with the movie Elf. Christmas classic at this point, for sure. All right, so if you have a few like, I've got to see these movies during the holidays, like put that one up on the list. It's, it's really good. All right, and one of the, the in, in the beginning of this movie, uh, Buddy the Elf is having a little bit of problems putting together Etch-a-Sketches at a, at a reasonable rate, right? And so he can't kind of put them all together very, very quickly. And he's, he's way behind his quota that he should be having for the day. And, and what happens is they kind of like, hey, you're really far behind. And he's like, man, I'm a cotton-headed ninny muggins, right? That's what Buddy the Elf says of himself. And, and do you remember what the, the other elves do? Right? They start to kind of try to comfort him, and they're having a hard time coming up with things to say. They're like, well, you're, you changed the light bulbs or whatever. You, you, you are the alto in the choir. So I can't remember what all the other ones are, but they, they try to comfort him, but there's, there's not much there. Perhaps you feel like Buddy the Elf at times. Maybe I'm just a cotton-headed ninny-muggins. How do we convince ourselves in that moment? What, how do we minister to our, to, to our own lives in that moment? Do we need to come up with things like, well, I can change the light bulb. I have a purpose, right? Are we coming up with facts and information of why we're lovely? I think there's a better way. There's a surer foundation. And that is to say that, that God is love. And we know that He has loved us, not because we were able to change the light bulb or because of something in us, but because, because He is love. So we don't need to come up with why we're lovely. That, as sinners, can come and go, right? There are times when we really love ourselves and times when we're really down on ourselves, and we could kind of go sway the evidence depending on our mood for the day. That's really shifting ground. But if we say, no, God is love, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for my sins, that's sure foundation. Now, Martin Luther said this, that the love of God doesn't find but creates that which is pleasing to it. So rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. And that is firm ground for us when we think that we're a cotton-headed ninny-muggins. That is firm ground for us when we're ministering to others. We don't need to come up with like being like those elves, those poor counselors, right? Oh, you can change the life. We don't need to come up with that when we're trying to minister the love of God for others. We can say, God is love. And He loved you not because you were lovely or for some potential for being lovely. He loved you because He Himself is love. That's firm ground. And so this twice-repeated truth means something. It's needed for us when we're on that unstable ground of feeling like I'm a cotton-headed ninny-muggins or when we need to give others some stable ground when they're unsure. We can say, no, God is love. And those who know that God is love, who know it and believe it, as verse 16 says, go on, verse 16, read the rest. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Again, more mutual indwelling, more evidence that God is in us. Abiding in love is being able to receive the love of God, give out the love of God back to God and to others. It's, it's both being the, the object of love from God and, and being able to reciprocate that 
to God as well. It's, it's being this object and channel of love, both to God, and then we're going to find out that it's clearly connected to others. So both being a recipient and reciprocating love is evidence of belonging to God. And when you know that God abides in you and that you abide in God, that can give you a confidence that the world can't touch. Listen to verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. We don't want to get away from this very real truth that there is a coming day of judgment. And for every person created, we are created and we are also fallen. We have sinful natures. We sin because we are sinners. And what we deserve is on that day of judgment, is judgment. It is wrath, and it is real, and it is coming. That is true. There should be real dread because of that. It is troubling for sinners because it is a real threat, actual judgment. And if we come up in the judgment, we know we're going to be lacking. But it's a day of judgment or a day of salvation, according to the Scriptures. A day of glory or day of dread. And, and the, the difference in whether it's a day of salvation, whether it's a day of judgment, whether it's a day of glory or a day of dread, is how we are in relationship to Jesus. He's either Savior who saves us from God's wrath, or He's not. And we have nothing to protect us from God's wrath. He is Savior or He is not. He is either become our propitiation, or the Father's wrath has not been turned aside and is still directed right at us. Now, if He is Savior, and if He is propitiation, then He is those things by love. And love reaches its full expression in knowing and believing that love so much to the point that on that day of judgment, when the Holy God is revealed and we are still sinners, that we're not in dread that we can actually have confidence. Why? John says, because as he is in the world, so also are we. John speaks of himself and throws himself into the audience here. In other words, he's kind of saying that, that we have the same status that Jesus had. Think of what he said so far. He said, right now, for that audience that he writes to, for those readers, he says, see what kind of love that the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are right now. Children of God, we have this advocate right now on this earth with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, he has now jumped on our team because he came to be the propitiation for our sins, and now he is our advocate before the Father. Everything he advocates for, he gets. And by his love, right now, verse 9 of chapter 4 we have this love, God sent His Son in the world, so what? So that we might live through Him. So there's some present realities, and it's the person and work of Jesus, what He has done, and being vitally connected to Him that gives us confidence for that day because we share in His status before the Father. Children of God, an advocate, living, Him living through us right now. Now, just before, actually it was a few days even, I think, before I proposed to Catherine, my friend also proposed to his girlfriend, and he did it extravagantly. 
he had his, this is real, okay? He had his own plane and his own pilot license, and he had a friend who was almost his same age who also had a pilot license. And so what they did was that he, he got pool noodles, and he kind of tied them together, buoyed them together some way, and put them in Canton Lake, and it said, marry me. And then he flew her over it. He had his friend fly, and he was, you know, and so he could ask the question and not, not fly, right? That's, that's what happened. And, and I found out about that a few days before I was going to propose. <laughs> like, like, the pressure is on now. And the, the thing is, is that that's kind of a losing battle because I don't, I don't know how you can beat that. Like, I don't have a pilot's license or, or a plane. I mean, like, this is, this, I don't know. It was a lot of pressure. For proposals, there's, there's pressure not just on how you're going to do it, but, but on the answer, right? Now, if you're in that stage, guys, and you're going you're gonna to ask that question, I think you should make sure that you, you're pretty confident of the answer. Uh, you need to be, or, or maybe don't move in that direction. But there's still, like, you're still putting it out there, right? Is it going to be a yes or a no? And, and you've you got to have some nerves about what is she going to say or what's, what's going to happen in this situation. And so at the proposal, there's, there's a little bit of nerves. You can be nervous. How's this going to go? What's she going to say? But, but all that dissolves on the wedding day. Right? On the wedding day, I was not nervous at all. I was excited, full of joy. I wasn't concerned, is she going to run out of this place? Like, maybe you should have. <laughs> but she, I wasn't concerned that she would. She's a great woman. I knew she was going to say, I was confident with my beloved, right, that she was going to be there and that we were going to make public and before God what we knew to be true, like that we had committed our love to one another. We were sure of that love. We were ready to make it public. And, and church, that's the kind of love that the Father has given to us. We're not in the proposal stage where we need to be unsure about what, if God is going to receive us or not. Like in Christ and Him being sent and Him being the propitiation of our sin, like God has sealed the deal. We have His covenant love right now. And so we don't need to be nervous. Like, what's He going to say on the day of judgment? Is He going to receive me or is He not? We already know the answer. And so we get to approach that day with confidence and joy and anticipation. I love in weddings, like the, the, the big triumphant moment is when they open the doors or whatever we have, like, and, and that the bride comes like pure and spotless and delivered over to the groom. And there's just like, the, you can just see the beaming all the way around. So we, they see one another's faces and like, that's it. The joy that we get have, we can have it right now, confidence right now as we move towards that day, that one day Jesus is going to finally and fully finish what he started, but he has already committed himself fully to his bride, the church, and he is not going to lose her. Jesus never loses his girl. Right? He always wins her. He always gets her. And so she's going to come, and she does not need to have any sort of fear about how this is going to go. They, there needs to be confidence and joy as they approach, knowing he's won me. That's the kind of love God has for us. He's not going to rescind his offer. He's not going to waver on his commitment. When he's gone all the way in. He's going to win his bride. And that kind of love, if you know it, if you believe it, that leads to confidence on that day. A day that really should be for sinners full of fear. It's going to be full of confidence and joy as the bride is presented. And John wants us to deepen our understanding and knowledge of that love. 
So he reminds us again, God is love, and we can have confidence on that day because of that love. And then he goes on in verse 18 and says that there's no fear in love, but perfect love, it casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So when the realities of the love of God are known and believed, as verse 16 talked about, then this this fear of punishment is then removed. It's, It's taken out. If Jesus is propitiation, then all the punishment that I deserved was already poured out. There's no punishment left for me. How could there be if the Son of God, the infinite Son, who was with the Father in the beginning, came and took that punishment? How could there be any left for me? That's an infinite sacrifice, an infinite display of love. There couldn't be any punishment left for me if that's my propitiation. If he's the one that took the punishment that I deserve, there's none left. God will never require a double payment as if to say, I'm going to get it from my son and then I'm going to pour it out on you too. No, if you're in the son, there's no punishment left. The cup of God's wrath has been poured over. It is completely empty for those who are in Christ. What's more, John explains the why of this. Right? He didn't do it again because these were lovely people and that the bride was already ready and pure and spotless and cleaned up. He loved the bride and, and he, because he loved the bride, is making her lovely. This kind of love is merciless to the fear of punishment. It melts it. It leaves no room for that kind of fear of punishment. This kind of love is so compelling, so overwhelming that there's no room left for the thought of punishment if you know the love of Christ. But John knows that that's not always the case. In verse 18, he says the very end, that there's a, he kind of leaves it open. There's this possibility that this love hasn't been perfected. He reminds them of the love of God, but he knows that that's possibility. Well, what do we do then? What do we do if there is this fear of punishment? I think John's approach to them has been really instructive. So if we find ourselves in a place where we fear the punishment from God, if that day when we think about it doesn't bring us confidence and joy, but more dread, here's what we do. We we take it to God. We, We look at who He is. Again, we're not We're not going to convince ourselves of how lovely we are. That's not what John does. He takes them to God. He shows them who God is. He shows them what God has done. He's poured tons of ink into this immediately surrounding context that has fear and punishment. He's poured a lot of ink around it with the idea of God's love and showing his love and being himself love. It's as if we don't chase fear away, but we let love chase it away. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the old video game of Dr. Mario. It seems to be like we need to play that game now in the virus age. All right, what you do is Dr. Mario flips pills and you kind of line them up to destroy viruses. It's a little bit like Tetris as you kind of like get lines, but that's Dr. Mario. And, and what the pills do is that he just shoots them in there and you just line them up and the viruses are all like dancing around until the pill hits them and they're like destroyed. They dissolve, right? And, and to know the love of God... It is to line up his love that he has already thrown out there, that's already there, and to line them up rightly with our fear and to just let it melt away. If we, if we see and know God's love and see it displayed in the Son of God, the Savior of the world, in what he, who he is and what he has done, and we let that reality do work on us, then, then fear is not left anymore. 
It's dissolved. It's completely eradicated. It's taken out because the the good physician continues to drop love over and over and over again. And we just line it up and rightly let it dissolve the fear that's in us. And so we don't fear before God. We love God. And that's what he wants in verse 19, the reciprocation of love. We love because he first loved us. So instead of fear of punishment, there's this response to love. We love God because he first loved us. Our love for God is based not on us some conjuring up something inside of us, but receiving God's love and just responding to it. He gives us what we need. He's the one that makes the first move. We, we receive God's love and then we start giving it out, not because we have come up with it, but because he's given it already and we reciprocate. God didn't wait for any of us to love him. He, he loves us first. He, he made the first move toward the bride. And, and he gets his girl with the love that he has for her. And his first move towards us was a move of love because that is who he is. And because God first loved, he says we ought to love too. When one knows and believes that love, there will be. Notice the connection. These are absolutely connected. There will be this response of love. Love to God, but, but he moves it out, broadens it further. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, There were people probably making this claim that we're not with them anymore. They say they love God but hated their brothers. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. All right, so if you remember Dr. Mario, you probably are familiar with arcade games. And in arcade games, you, you can go in and you can play on them for a little bit without putting any money in. Demo mode. Have you ever done this? Where you, you have a little bit of control and you can kind of move the little guy around. They're trying to like pull you in so you pump your money into that machine, right? And so they let you play for just a little bit and then it'll stop and say like insert coins to continue or something like that. It, it's short. Anybody can do it. You can come up. You don't have to have money or anything. You just come up and you, you play it and they're trying to hook you. But to actually play, you're, you're going to need to put the money in. You're going to need to put the coins in. But once the coins are in right? You're free to play. Like you, you can roam around, do the full game, right? You don't just have to do just a little bit and just for a short amount of time. And because God loved us first, the, those who are his are, are moved from, from demo mode where there might be displays of love, right? People that aren't in Christ can love others that they can kind of maneuver around for a little bit, but, but eventually those supplies and resources for that run out. But those who are God's who have been first loved by him, they move from demo mode to, to the full play. Where, where now, because he has loved us, we, we can now love others. And we have all sorts of freedom to love others because God has entered an immeasurable amount of coins to both empower and energize our love for others. We can go everywhere. We get the full game because of what he has done and him first loving us. Apart from him, yeah, we may be able to love some, but we're not going to be able to do it freely. We're probably not going to be able to do it long, but knowing God's love gives us the infinite supply we need to then move towards others with affection and actions and to love them the way they're supposed to. We now have been freed up by God's love to love other people. And an indispensable part of those who love God is that love for other people. He doesn't insert the coins into the game and then we not play. John says that doesn't exist. If you think that exists, you're a liar. You don't have love for God and not love others too because you can't love the unseen God 
and not love those brothers that you see all around you is what he says. It's a lesser to the greater. If you can't love those that are right around you that you can see, you're definitely not loving the God who is unseen. It's so clear from verses 20 and 21 that you can't do just like, just God and me Christianity. That's excluded. The Bible knows nothing of that. If you love God, you are going to love others. And notice, they're not just somewhere out there ethereal. You see them. Actually seen people. You can't know God's love and not love those that you can actually see. That, if that's not a response, then John says you're a liar and you don't actually love God. Can we be moved by God's love as we look around at the real faces around us? If not, then we don't know God. But church, I want us to look around and see some faces and say and ask ourselves the question, if I can't love these people, that the faces I'm actually seeing, then there is no way that I can love God. To examine our faith to see if it's real. And one way to examine it is to look around, find some faces and say, do I love that person? And if I don't, then I've got some work to do in repentance and believing what God has said to me. If we can't look around at real faces and be full of affection for those people, move toward them in affection, move toward them in our actions that we talked about in chapter 3 and so forth, if we can't do that, then again, what we need to know is that God is love and that he has given his son as a propitiation for your sins, that if you believe in him, you won't perish but have eternal life. And the life he wants you to live is life where he's living through you. And the life he lives through you is life moving towards others in love. He first loves so that we can then love others. But if we know and believe the love God has for us, we're not going to be cold towards others. If you know and believe God's love for you and you're cold towards others, here's what I would say to do. I would go warm yourself at the fires of God's love. That's where John starts. And if we warm ourselves at the fires of God's love, what it always does is that it always moves us outward towards others. So if you're not loving towards others, don't first move towards others, first move towards God. Warm yourself at that fire, and once we're warm there, it, it always moves us out. If it doesn't, if we, we go to God and, and it's not warming us towards others, then we're not going to God. We're at the wrong fire, then we need to fix it. Go to God, who himself is love, and his love will then warm us enough to send us out to love others. Now church, we get to do that right now. One of the means that God has given us to remind us of his love for us and to do this with love for one another is the Lord's Supper. It's both of those things. It's not, again, just me and Christianity, me and God Christianity, where we're, we're on this supper on our own. This is a family meal. We take it with real people, real faces that we're looking at. We're reminding ourselves of God's love as seen in Jesus who died in our place so that we could live, whose body was broken, blood was poured out so that we might be uh, in a place of perfection with God forever, but he didn't just do that for us. He did that for us. And so if you're his church, man, come in confidence in what Jesus has done and in his love for you and take and joy, but, but do it with one another. Right? We, we look around as we take this meal. We, we stand up together. We, we walked. We're taking of a similar, I mean, it's, we're supposed to be one loaf, one cup. We're, we're many cups and one-ish loaves. But it's a meal of unity because if we don't love one another, 
We need to go back to seeing if we know and love God. If you don't know God, we just say, look at his love that he's displayed for you in Jesus. Trust in him. And then you can be prepared to take this family meal once you've trusted in him. If you're his, come and take this meal in hope and confidence of what he has done for you. Let's pray together. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, we believe that you are coming. And as Pastor Dylan said this morning, that will be a great and glorious day, a day of salvation, or it will be a terrifying day of judgment. It will be the beginning of the worst for many, and it will be unending, God, and we do not want that for anyone. We want everyone to know you, the God of love, the God who has poured himself out for sinners, poured himself out for enemies, God, and and I pray that your perfect love for us would drive out that fear of judgment for some today. If they think of your coming with dread, if they think of that that day as the time when they stand before you to give an account for all of the wicked things that they've done and how they've lived as rebels against you, Lord, that does not have to be a terror. But if I pray, I pray if that's where they are, they would turn from their sin and put their trust in you and that they would run to a God who is pursuing them even now. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, give them new hearts, fill them with your love, and begin to turn them outward. Jesus, your saints in this room, your sons and daughters, we are not saints because of our good deeds, but because you have made us lovely. And we are so thankful. And your love is proved in what we're about to do as we think about you giving your body, your body being broken instead of ours, when we think about your blood being poured out instead of ours, and when we think about that day when you return, (laughs) that we will greet you and we will see your face. We will know you as you fully are, like we only just have a taste of it here. Jesus, we can't wait. You could not show more of your love to us. You couldn't give us more love than you already have. And we praise you for that, Lord. And we also ask that you would help us to be more loving because we could certainly pour out more love than we do. We love one another and we love ourselves. And it's always a competition with our remaining sinful nature, Jesus. And we don't want to be like that. We want to be like you. 
Thank you for this church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this body of people that you've put us around to love and to be loved by, to purify one another, to help one another deal with our sin. Thank you for continuing to purify your bride, Jesus. Thank you for not waiting until we cleaned ourselves up, but starting the process yourself. We can't wait till our wedding feast, Jesus, but we love to get a taste of it now, and that's what we do as we honor you in your supper. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.